Department of Replacements and Ratios. So my name is Shamu Basirin. I'll be the chair this afternoon. And we have Joe, who is a qualified pensions actuary, as well as the head of actuarial at UCT that will um, be the speaker. You'll be required to use your app. So for those of you who haven't downloaded it, please do so, because there will be some questions um, that you need to answer. The talk will be about 45 minutes, and thereafter we'll have um, some questions um, for time as well. So over to Joe. Thanks. There's a big button to press. Okay, great. Hello, everybody. It's nice to start off with a technical problem just to get the blood pumping. So can you hear me? Is this on? Right, lovely. Um, thank you very much for coming to my sessions. It's mostly filled with ex-colleagues of mine and fabulous. Thank you very much for supporting me. Um, so today's um, talk is about replacing the income replacement ratio and it's a cute title, but I am trying to, to actually um, improve on the income replacement ratio we use. Um, it's foundational. All you need to know to start with is that the income replacement ratio is the ratio between your, the income you have immediately after retirement to the income you had just prior to retirement. And if you're a pensions actuary, I think this is like bread and, and butter. We use it a lot. If you're not a pensions actuary, you, this is just the core of pensions, VC pensions right here, right now, and you don't need to know much more than that. Um, <laughs> and the reason why I want to talk about this um, is because retirement appears to be broken. Um, all of us who work in retirement, and it's the oddest industry to work in, no, none of the other actuarial fields have this thing of like, well, nobody's really succeeding at the thing that we are trying to do. Nobody seems to have enough retirement funds. Everybody seems to be failing at retirement goals. But, you know, here we are. Um, let's, let's just carry on with it. If this was happening in insurance and somewhere else, people would be brainstorming or trying to solve this. But we like the orphan child. like, no, retirement doesn't work. Huh, let's try. Let's keep going. So... I've, I've been fascinated with why this is, but also why people are, we, we don't necessarily see this retirement failure coming through in actual pensioner stories. So I don't have good data on this, but I don't feel like the, the ratios that we're seeing, I mean, the industry is reporting ratios of, replacement ratios of 30%, 25% that people are achieving in retirement. And you would expect that people who are coming into that and are retiring on that are truly, really failing at retiring and, and you'd expect to see more, I don't know, consequences from this and yet somehow it isn't coming through quite as much as you'd think by how bad it looks. And I've been trying to get at this from different angles. Is it that money isn't as important as we think? Maybe happiness is the important thing. So I've looked at that for a while and I still hope that that's the truth because I've got a lot of happiness. Um, <laughs> um, Maybe it is that people have more money than we think because we usually look at only one company's replacement or one pension fund replacement thing. Is, is, is there something going on there? But the other way to, to think about it or to look for it is, are we measuring retirement adequacy correctly? Or is there something wrong there? Are we, are we maybe not measuring this thing very well? So that's, that's why I want to talk to you about this. And this little piece of a puzzle, which is are we measuring retirement adequacy as well as we could is what I'm going to be covering today. And the reason why we had technical difficulties, it's great. Thank you, everybody, come. Um, <laughs> um, is I want to ask you questions and hopefully these will come up on your app. So the idea is that you go to your app um, and you choose this session on your app and hopefully there'll be a button and you'll be able to, to vote. And the first um, question is, do you actually know what your projected replace, replacement ratio is going to be? It's an income replacement ratio. It's also called, called the gross replacement ratio or whatever you want to call it. But how much pension compared to, you, to your last salary you're likely to get? Um, it's incredible popularity in the last minute. Thank you all. <laughs> um, thanks for tweeting this. Obviously, this is what's happening here. Um, so I don't know how the results, but ideally the results will come up on screen. So I don't know if you're voting already. Um, and I don't even know if I need to press anything. Um, do I, the question's not on the app. It's at the bottom. Okay, thank you. Thank you, technical assistance team. It's at the bottom. We're going the wrong way. <laughs> okay. Yay, voting's happening. Okay. 
I think this question could have also been, are you a pensions actuary? You would have gotten the same answer. Because if you're a pensions actuary, you know the answer. And if you're not a pensions actuary, you probably don't. <laughs> this is the easiest question. <laughs> All right. So even amongst actuaries, only a less than half of you seem to know what your replacement ratio is going to be. And I do see some gray hair in the room, so some surprises are in store for you uh, when you retire. <laughs> Maybe it's better not to know. Maybe that's how we're coping with the, with the anxiety of the day. All right, let's move on. Uh, thank you very much for voting. There's more questions. Let's move on to the next question. And the next question is, and I don't know what's happening with the slides. Um, can we go back to the slides, please? Okay, the, this is the tough question. So if you know, what is it? All right, so that's, that's, and I put in quite broad categories. It's anonymous, don't be ashamed. Um, <laughs> tell us the truth. Um, where are you on this, on this scale? Um, so please look for that question. What is your projected IRR? And let's see what the voting says. There's still spaces in the front, and I am very, very enthusiastic about you wandering through. So go. Okay, so... Let's see if we can scroll here. Um, we've got only a few under 40%, um, 40 to 60, 30% of the people, 60 to 80, 40% of the people. Can we scroll up a little bit, please? Can we scroll up on the screen so we can see the other answers? There's five answers. Okay. Right, so this is giving us an, a good... So even amongst pensions actuaries who know what they're doing, um, the majority of us are between somewhere between 40 and 80%, the biggest lot uh, between 60 and 80% um, of your income that you will replace with your pension. There are some lucky, lucky people on uh, more than 100%. Um, if you want to raise your hands, you'll probably make friends. Uh, <laughs> You'll be the one paying for dinner in retirement. Um, all right, and the, the, the last question for now, the third question is, um, is the telling question, actually, which is, what, what is the target? Next slide, please. Oh, I should do that. No, no. Okay, there we go. We've got it. What is the target? So wherever you are, what is it that you should actually be targeting? What is an adequate retirement target? Um, and I've given you some options here. I've decided that under 50%, I'm not going to allow you to vote for that. Um, so what is it? 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100? Let's see if we can get that question going. 70 or 80% with some in 90 and some in 100, as far as I can tell. In fact, more in the 100s than in the 90s. Can I see the bottom, please? Right. The m there's some people here who have read some papers and, um, and know that it should be 100. No, um, we will talk about this just now. This is just like a lecturer setting you up so that I can tell you how you're wrong later. <laughs> All right, so between 70 and 80 for the majority, but there are some people who think it should be higher than 70 and 80. Okay, thank you so much for voting. There will be one more question later. Uh, you can go back to sleep now. Um, <laughs> All right, okay. So the first thing I want to talk is why not 100%, 12 of you who are wanting 100%, I, why don't we need to necessarily target 100% at retirement? Um, and the way I want to split it up is to say, well, your income pre-retirement, you will spend on three things, or you'll use on three things. Part of it will be used on the consumption, everyday things that you buy in order to survive. Part of it you will save in, in various savings vehicles, and uh, there's a large unfortunate part that goes towards tax. Um, and that's Roughly, I mean, you can split this out more, but roughly, more or less, those three things cover what you do with your income. Um, and if you go into your post-retirement situation, the idea is that each of these components will change in some way. And the first one is tax. And the idea is that for most people, tax will become lower on, on retiring because you'll have a lower income. Go you. Well done. Good planning. Um, <laughs> you'll be in a lower marginal tax bracket as a result, and also there's a higher tax rebate. So all of these things should add up to a reduction in, in tax. You also should be saving less in retirement. You might, might be saving zero, or you might be saving, but at least you should not be saving for retirement anymore. That time has passed. Uh, you've had your chance. So that should reduce. 
And then consumption is the contentions was. So what's going to happen to your consumption on retirement? And there's, there's lots of literature on this, and people say, well, you don't need work expenses anymore. You don't need to buy a fancy uh, suit and car. You can switch to home production, cook more meals at home, have some more time. But on the other hand, health and, and leisure costs, leisure first, then health, um, are going to take up a large amount of your income. And so the jury's out on where we sit with that. But the point is that some reduction to tax and savings will happen. So ideally, hopefully, if consumption doesn't increase hugely after retirement, you should be looking for a lower than 100% ratio. So just to reassure those 12 of you. Um, so whatever that target, target is, it probably won't be 100%. So the thing I want to look at today is rather than looking at income, which is complicated, and people don't intuitively understand and don't quite know where they're going to go with this tax and savings thing, just to look at consumption as a simpler, more direct way of comparing how much money you're going to have available to live on in retirement. Um, and so I define the consumption replacement ratio, the CRR, as your consumption post-retirement uh, divided by your consumption pre-retirement, just those two years. So it's not very much more complicated than it was, but we are taking out tax and savings um, and and looking at it that way. So my approximation for consumption, because I don't have consumption data because that's really hard to get, is to say, well, you take your income and you subtract tax, and you take your, 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 your pre-retirement income and subtract tax and your savings for retirement. You might be doing other savings as well, we don't know about that, but at least we know that whatever you're contributing to a pension fund, you will not be contributing in retirement. So let's take it out. So it's an approximation for consumption, but I think it gets us closer to understanding what people are actually doing with their money. So a final question, um, back onto your app. If that's what, what we're doing, if it's consumption replace, replacement that we're targeting, what is the right target? So in terms of, of um, if we ignore the tax and savings, this is the amount of money that arrives in your bank account before retirement compared to the amount of money that will arrive in your bank account after retirement, what should be that ratio? Okay. And here, actuaries are finally split. <laughs> Can we see the bottom ones, please? Okay, some people say it should be 100%, and some people say, wow, okay, so any number. <laughs> it's definitely a number. Well done, thank you. <laughs> we have agreement. Um, I think a lot of people are ending up on 100%, but you definitely see that there's a split of, of opinions. So this is really interesting. And I'm not going to be able to answer that question. I, the way I answer that question is to say, in the absence of, of not knowing any better, I'm going to say, let's try and reproduce the same amount of income and uh, consumption in retirement as I had pre-retirement. And that, that might be wrong, but I think it's intuitively closer to right than, this, than using n numbers on the income replacement ratio, which are very intuitively difficult to understand. Um, but I do have a fi final question. The final slide of this presentation is back to this question, which is, which is um, really at the core of it. All right. You can relax, guys, in the back. I'm not going to make you do anything else. <laughs> so my argument is I'd like to use consumption replacement ratios instead of income replacement ratios. They're more individual because they take into account how much tax and how much savings you are actually making yourself as opposed to making a very crude assumption about it on behalf of you. Um, and so they more accurately communicate how ready you are for retirement actually. So if these IRRs are too simplistic and CRRs are more accurate, then how would changing from, from one mode of communication to the other actually affect what people no, what, what, what information we can give people about the adequacy of their retirement savings. So in order to answer that question is I, or we, um, there's, there's some, some very able and, and smart um, honors, uh, UCT honors students who are behind this um, as well. We tried this for a real fund and we were able to get the data for my own fund, which I'm a member of, which is a UCT retirement fund. Um, that is a big DC fund. Um, it's got 487 members at the moment when I took the data measure. Um, and the way that I've, after looking at, at this for quite a lot, one of the most important things for you to know is that at UCT we've got academics uh, who I'll be using yellow throughout. We've got a lot of admin support staff for academics, two per one academic, as you can see. Um, it doesn't feel that way, but. <laughs> um, and then 
in, uh, recently we've insourced, I don't know if you've been following the news, but we've insourced a lot of contract support staff, and those are usually low-income cleaners and security guards, and they now form a quarter of the fund as well. So, so it's an interesting fund because it's got these different kinds of members with very different characteristics. And have a look at some of these. So age-wise, we're all middle-aged um, and <laughs> downhill. Um, <laughs> so all, of, all the groups are relative in their 40s, which, which, is, which is quite, a, quite an old um, average age. But if you look at the past service that we have in the fund, so, you, so UCT retirement fund is actually interesting because we don't have a lot of turnover academics, so I don't ever leave. Um, but, so academics and admin staff have been in the fund for nine and a half or 8.2 8 years on average, but our NSO staff have, have just joined, which, which would make a lot of sense. Um, the average salaries of fund members are very different across the category. So we've got academic staff at about 750,000. If you want to apply for a job, talk to me afterwards. Um, <laughs> and um, admin staff about half that, and your NSO staff is your, your that 129, I mean, there are people there who are earning less than, than 10,000 rand a month. Um, so it's, it's very much representative of, of, a, of a, the largest part of, of South Africa um, and, and a very different segment of the population. Um, then there's this thing called average pensionable salary. Again, if you're a pension fund, actually, you know, you know what this is. Um, and I'll talk about this just now. It basically directly leads into how high your contributions are. So the, more, the higher pensionable salary, the more you're contributing into the fund. Academics, on average, choose a 75% um, um, pensionable salary level. Admin staff, a bit lower. And our insourced staff are on the lowest possible. 50% is the lowest you're allowed to choose. And they are very fundamentally on that. Um, the way this works is that you can choose any number between 50 and 100%. Uh, our contribution rate is fixed at 22.5% into the fund, but that's of pensionable salary, so you can tell that the lowest possible contribution to the fund is actually 11.5% uh, or 11.5%. Rounding. Um, <laughs> um, we, we can have a ABCs. We have additional voluntary contributions, but they're not hugely utilized. Only crazy actuaries and other people are using them. Um, and um, we, when people join, the, we, we, we give advice on what kind of pensionable salary level to take, and there's a default which relates to the less you earn, the, the lower we ac actually recommend that you take that, because you, then you have more take-home pay, which is what people really want, particularly at lower income levels. But it does add into the picture of the less you have, the less you save. So this graph is, is, looks confusing, but just look at the yellow for now. So what we've got there is the academics contribu contribution rate after you work it all, all out. And basically, the majority of academics, except for the diehards who definitely don't, don't want to save for retirement, um, are sitting here, and they are um, contributing on average 15.4% into the fund, which actually then represents what a lot of the average South African funds uh, on the middle to high income look like. Um, our, our admin staff are quite similar. There's more of them on the, on the very low, lowest possible level, but otherwise peaking at around 13.7%. Um, and then you've got our, income, uh, our insource staff, and they are solidly sitting on pretty much as low as you can go, which is 10.5% contribution into the fund. Um, and again, that represents almost an, an entirely different kind of fund. That's your, that's your bargaining sector fund, your mining funds. They will look like that. They probably have lower contribution rates. Just a few extra stats. stats. So obviously, academics have saved more because they've got higher salaries and they stay in the fund for a long time. Uh, whereas the insource staff have just started and they're contributing very little on the low salary. And then maybe one more telling characteristic is that we have some investment choice in our fund. There's four different options. I don't want to go into them, but just looking at the, the high-risk fund, the one that people should be in over the long term, um, academics, 74% of academics' money is sitting in that high-risk fund. Um, look, drops down to 60% for our admin staff and only 45 percent of the money of our in-source staff is actually sitting in a market-related or a high market fund. So you can see what the story is co coming together for all these different types of members. So what we've done then is to project the replacement ratios for every person in the fund um, in order to see how they change when we change methodologies. So I've got one slide with numbers so that you trust that I've done uh, some actuarial work. There's some as I said, very smart actuarial students who actually did the work, so don't worry, it's right. Um, <laughs> um, sorry about the order of these, but for investment returns, depending on which fund you were in, we assumed that the mandated return will be achieved. So our market-related fund is the 5% fund, and then we've got a number of other ones. Um, we assumed that um, we have 
suddenly I'm giving us quotes for annuity rates and we looked at those quotes for an inflation linked annuity because that's what we use to, to, to communicate to our members as well. But we built in mortality improvements going into the future, which we don't currently do for our members. So we looked at how to project mortality in some way just to get a more realistic idea of a young member retiring 30 or 40 years from now. So there's mortality improvements built in. Um, we chose to model a joint life annuity for married people uh, with a 75% spouse and pension. Again, that's what's offered uh, in the fund calculator, so we try to reproduce that. For single people, it's a single life annuity. We modeled salary increases as a 1% over inflation, but we added promotional increases in because I think it's criminal not to. On a long, long career, um, not having any promotional increases is very unrealistic. If you look at how salaries progress, if you're advancing from lecturer to senior lecturer to professor and so on, there is quite a lot of possible, believe it or not, it's actually possible to earn quite a lot more um, in the end. So, so we did build it, build it in, um, which does make the picture worse. Um, and then we had to project tax, so we projected tax at increasing at 1% over inflation. It's a bit of a thumb suck, but we thought it would not, it, it can't stay with inflation because then we'd lose track of our salary, so we basically projected it to go up at the same rate as salaries without promotions. And then the final choice that we made, and we did test around this a bit, is for your pension tax, um, it's easy to underestimate the amount of or to, to, uh, tax by saying, you know, this person was only in the fund for three years, so they have a negligible amount of pensions and they're not going to pay any tax. So what we said was, actually, let's, let's take a more conservative view and say that these people have other savings elsewhere, and we just gross their pension up to 40 years of savings, which is a very conservative assumption. Um, it overestimates tax, I think, but we try to, to not underestimate um, the impact of tax. So we basically said that tax rate will be applied to your pension no, no matter how small it is. So I think that, that it gives us a bottom line for tax, um, at least. So the UCTRF has a calculator that people can use at the moment. Um, and that calculator doesn't have mortality projection or promotional increases built into it, but otherwise follows very similar principles as I've just outlined. Um, it's on the website, it's available to members, and we're making moves to put it into benefit statements next so people can actually see what they are getting and, and how they're progressing towards their retirement. Um, so I went onto the website and I did my own. Um, so yay, I'm on 79% income replacement ratio projected if I carry on saving at the rate that I'm saving, uh, which, is, which is fabulous and, and exciting and um, would have been embarrassing otherwise because as an actuary and a pensions actuary, you should be supposed to be getting this right, no judgment. Um, <laughs> and then we recalculated it using promotional increases and longevity improvements and it dropped down to 72%. So I'm sitting on 72%. And one of the things about that is what does that mean? And how will I actually experience retirement if I have 72% replacement ratio? Which is why I'm trying to dissuade you from using the, um, these income replacement ratios and move to something that's more understandable. So then we did it for everybody else. And these graphs will be, there will be a lot of graphs now. <laughs> Breathe. Um, the, these graphs are all structured by just showing a distribution of our membership. The proportion of our membership is sitting on this axis. And then whatever the income replacement ratio they achieve is on that axis. So you can see they. There I am, um, 72, um, and I can really pat myself on the back because there's not a lot of people who are doing better than me. But that's actually bad news because it means we're all doing terribly and it's part of this whole problem that I started off the conversation with is that nobody's achieving particularly high replacement ratios. Um, we are using 75% as a, as a benchmark um, income replacement ratio target here. Um, we could have used 70, but we looked at literature and kind of ended up with 75. Um, so it's bang in the middle of what you guys were voting for, so confirmed by the wisdom of crowds, hopefully. Um, which means I'm just short of what the fund says is enough, or what, uh, what, what we're saying it's enough. Um, only 26 people outpaced this out of, out of 4,867 uh, 4, um, are doing better than, than that 75% target. So that's, that's the worry. Um, and the average income replacement ratio on this graph is 30%. Now, and that's kind of the news we get from everywhere, right? That's what people are getting. And I remember, th this includes projections. So it's not just that people haven't been in the fund for long. We, we're assuming they're going to stay in the fund until they retire. Then we split this up to have a look at the different um, employee groups. And that's where the story gets even sadder, because 
our academics are sitting on an average of 36%, our um, admin staff are sitting on 32% uh, on average, and our newly insourced staff, no matter how long, how young they are and how long they're going to work, on average they work out to an 80%, 18% replacement ratio. So the news is worse for the people who are at, at the lower levels of income who are more, you know, who, who, are, who will be struggling more. And that's, again, the story that comes through, I think, in all of our funds. Yes? There's a slide on that later, but not yet. Okay. <laughs> wow, Neil. Uh, one. Uh, one. We, we won. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's from our working at Jack Milan together. Um, all right. <laughs> so the first thing we did then is take out tax. So this was, these was, we, were pure gross replacement ratios. What if we remove tax from the equation and recalculate the ratios? What is the effect? Um, you would expect that post-retirement tax is lower than pre-retirement tax, and therefore we experience an improvement. Um, so this is the other type of graphing you need to get used to, but again, it's a distribution of membership, and then the proposed proportional change in replacement ratio as a result of making this change. So basically what we're saying is the majority of people are better off as a result of removing, of accounting for tax. So in fact, not paying less tax in retirement lifts up their living standard. Some remain the same, and there are a few, strangely, who will be paying more tax in retirement than they were paying, or, or who will be worse off because of tax in retirement than they were, and, and, and I'm one of them. And basically the problem there is if your pension's too high, um, you actually end up having a um, taxable salary that's actually higher than your taxable salary was before your pension fund contributions. Um, but that's okay. It still means you've got a lot of money. So. Let's not worry about these guys too much. <laughs> so on average, we got a 9% increase um, just by taking out tax in, in this replacement ratio. So that's nice. Um, the second thing we did is take out the savings rate. So whatever contribution you're making towards retirement, let's take that out and see what the difference is. Everybody goes up, obviously, because you're only changing one part of the, the calculation there. Um, the average, I mean, they went up by different numbers depending on your, what your situation was, uh, but the average was a 20% increase in replacement ratio on top of that. So, you know, I'm looking for positive news and this all looks great. Um, so the overall change from going from income replacement to a consumption replacement ratio, um, remember this was where we were sitting, this is our income replacement ratio, 30% on average. If we plot the consumption replacement ratio on top of that, definitely seeing a shift away from these, from these lower numbers, a bump up in the curve, Everybody's going up a little bit, um, and it's looking quite nice. The average is now 39% as opposed to 30. So if I stopped there, we'd have good news. Um, I've gone up to 92, so let's stop there. That's fantastic, right? Um, <laughs> so the only problem is that the target's shifting as well. So 75% is no longer the right number to look at. We said we will look at just replacing consumption entirely, and it means shifting goalposts, we're now looking at a 100% replacement ratio. Um, so I'm still short, whatever I do. I can't calculate my way out of this. Um, <laughs> and 16 people only meet these new criteria, so it's not improved much on the, on the end as well. But I just wanted to draw your attention to the difference between these two numbers. If I tell somebody, you should aim for 75 income replacement ratio, that means you're going to get 75% of the income you're getting now, but there'll be some changes to tax, and you won't be saving anymore, and your consumption will change. So, you know, just aim for that, and then if you get 72%, you know, maybe that's fine. That's hard to process, but if somebody tells me, I'm going to get 92% of the money that's coming into my bank account as a pension later, into my bank account after tax and, and, and everything, I can make sense of that. I can say I can live off that. I can tell what I'd cut out. I actually have other savings I'd st probably stop making. That is a sensible way for me to interpret my living standards. So I like the CRR because of that, because you can say, okay, you're going to have to cut your consumption by 8%. Can you manage that? And I think that's something that you can actually get people to understand. So we want to measure the actual net effect of, of this, but the problem is that the consumption replacement ratio is always greater than the income replacement ratio, but that's not what the question that we're asking because we want to compare them to a target. So we put a target next to them both, and what we've done is we said, how far are you to reach? What percentage of the target have you re reached? And then how, how do those compare? Um, so we created something called the 
change in projected living standard. Um, I wanted my guys to call it CHIPS, but they went with CPLS instead. Um, and this is quite hard to, to intuitively comprehend, but it's basically, if this number is above one, after we do both calculations, if your number is above one, that means that you're better off than you thought. It means that whatever we told you based on how far you are away from your income replacement ratio target, you're not as far away as all that. If this number is below one, it means that you're further off than we've communicated. So we've told you, you, you are, you know, you're getting there in, in this way, but actually you're further away from your target than you even thought you were. So this is just to try and see who are we lying to in what way. <laughs> um, it's the lying ratio. Um, so the change in projected living standard distribution across our fund looks like this. And one of the most interesting things, which is not very um, obvious to start with, is actually for 44% of our members, that target of 75% IRR is about right. Okay, so by telling people aim for 75%, it's actually about the same as saying that will maintain your consumption after retirement for 44%. It's just knowing which 44% that's the problem because it's not, not necessarily, uh, um, you can't identify those people as easily, but that's the one takeaway. So if people say to you, what is that number supposed to be? One way of saying it, well, for, for, for some groups of people, um, it, that, that, is, that is the right number. We see that for the majority of our fund or the, or the, the second biggest group in our fund, that 75% target is basically too low. They should be aiming for more. They're currently being told that they are, you know, trying to aim towards a 75%, but actually if we look at their consumption, they need more than 75% in order to maintain their consumption. Um, and then there are some people who could actually target less than 75% because they, 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 that would be enough to maintain their living standard afterwards. And those are the people with the high contributions and high tax rates. So that's, that's one takeaway from this. The other one is to look at this, um, by, again, by, by, by membership group. And what you see there is our academics and our admin staff are averaging out at about a 0% change. So they, they, on average, that 75% target is right for them, but not for everybody, right? Because there's some people here for whom it's still under or over. So averages are misleading sometimes because it, not everybody's moved in the same direction. Um, but for this group of members, the, the, the group of members who's saving the least, who's earning the least, um, who's investing the worst, who's doing all the things that we worried about people doing. On top of that, we're also telling them um, a sort of rosy lie that they're closer to achieving their income replacement uh, or, or a certain living, living standard in retirement than they actually are because on average they've gone down. Um, so that's a sad story. Neil, we're going to come to the, the tilt where we, where we try and cheer us up because I yeah, I'm a happiness actuary, so I'm trying to find something good. But basically what we're seeing here is that everybody's doing badly at achieving these standards, but the people who are worst off at doing it are even worse off than we thought. So that's fantastic news. Um, that's fine. <laughs> okay, that's not the happy slide, right? <laughs> so what if there was a universal uh, social old age pension? We modeled it as universal because it's hard to tell who's going to hit the means test because we don't know what else they've got. And there have been musics of making it universal, so let's, let's give it to everybody and see what that does. So we changed the, the CRR equation to put in the, the social old age pension in for everybody after retirement. Um, so this is what that does. Your distribution, um, so lovely, change, we, we, we eliminate the dip, right? we eliminate this, this lowest of, of the low. We're shifting the whole uh, distribution to the right. And if you look at the numbers, we want 30% IRR, 39%, CRR, and now we're up to 47% with the SOG. Um, so that's starting to feel and look a little bit better. Um, the change in living standard, if you, uh, if you account for the SOG, is now mostly positive. There's very few people who still go down. Those are probably the very high income earners. Most people are now improved, and some are vastly improved. I've cut off the tail. But some, for some people who would have had a very, very low pension, who are on 64 years, have only just started in the fund, um, that SOG makes an enormous multiple difference because this is all um, um, proportional. 
And if you split it out by membership group, you see an improvement of about 11% for the academics, so it doesn't make as much of a difference for the academics. Uh, an improvement of 26% for our admin staff in terms of the, how much this, the, from the original income replacement to the, the consumption replacement, um, and a huge sort of doubling for our lowest income workers. So there's a little bit of a, of a hope there if we do, and, and well, a lot of them would probably get the SOAK even if they, there wasn't a universal SOAK. So there's that, um, does that answer your question? Something, there's a little bit of something there. Um, so the conclusions from this session, um, actually 75% is not a bad target for your white collar worker with a mid-level mid to high salary, um, saving about 15 or more percent per annum. Uh, of, of their salaries, um, th that pres uh, that preserves consumption for those for those kind of people. Um, but the, the if you if you need to work with IRRs, then you need to be looking at higher targets for those lower income workers. Um, so you could do IRRs with individualized targets where everybody comes in and say, okay, your target will be 92%, your target is 73%. Uh, but I I suggest trying to work with these consumption replacement ratios because you do have the information. You can work out the tax and you do know what the savings are. So you could actually be doing this. And they'll be more accurate for everybody and the communication is, is clear. And the final point is that so the SOG will make a huge difference to, to, to the low, lowest income workers, um, which, which does, maybe that's one of the components of why the, the reality isn't kind of as bad as the numbers always suggest it is. And then finally, just coming back to what I said I would bring you back to, is this, this idea that we need to aim for 100% rep uh, consumption replacement. Is that the right number? Is 100% the right target? Um, and that requires further investigation. And I suspect the answer to that is, unfortunately, the more money you have, the lower the target can be. The more money you have, the more accommodations and changes you can, you can make. The less money you have, the closer to 100% you will have to be. That, that, um, so, so unfortunately, it doesn't save everybody, but I, I can personally think about how much I could reduce my income or my, or my consumption and whether 100% is the right number for me or not. And that seems like something that's manageable for, for people. Phew, that's done. <laughs> Gentleman's got a question over here. Thank you. You promised. Do you want my mic? Okay. Um, when you incorporated the uh, when you incorporated the universal pension or grant, did you change any assumptions on taxes to fund it? Um, no, uh, no, I didn't. Um, it's a good question. So because they've been saying that they would try and and change taxation in some way, and I didn't know in what way. So I didn't. I mean, I assumed that your pension will get taxed as a whole pension, but I didn't assume that there's a change in rate. I think the intention is to take it from the highest income earners tax, so hopefully for those lowest income earners, that, that picture wouldn't change, but it might reduce the pension slightly on the highest income earners, yeah. Hi, Joe. Um, I 100% agree with you that the income replacement ratio isn't particularly useful, particularly as a communication tool, but where I'm struggling is we communicate because we want people to take action. You know, we want people to see that they're not doing well and we want them to do something different. So I, I did an experiment with some honor students and checking communication value of projections that people saw. And, you know, and we did a controlled experiment. They had a rubbish projection statement, then a super duper communication value statement. And not one person did anything different. Not one person. So I don't know if you've got any great ideas as to how we actually use a better communication tool to actually elicit action? <laughs> okay, good question. Um, so, thank you for doing experiments and science, um, by the way, Megan, that's always uh, lovely. Um, so my, um, my one sort of, and this is intuitive and, and, and not proven by anything, but my anecdotal intuition is that people are so depressed about anything that we tell them about their retirement savings, that they don't take action because it seems impossible. Um, if, when you tell people, you, when you tell somebody, you know, you, you need to be on 75%, but you're on, on 30%. So however you understand it, you are so far off, you need to increase your contributions to 40% per month, and all these impossible targets. I, f I feel like 
what comes out of that is a lethargy of uh, my aunt says I'm just gonna die <laughs> I, th I think I'll just die um, <laughs> sorry um, but it just becomes an impossible it's an impossible to fix it's like okay tighten your belt increase your contribution as much as you can and you know what your pensions only going up by five percent and you're still way too low um, so I think my my hope is always that if you manage to close that gap a little bit or, or to the point where where people can see that that they're not that far off something that might be manageable there might might be more action I don't know if this is true or not let's do experiments on, on our students because <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah um, I, I'm hoping that that by, by making that message because I, I think there's a lot of it's called retirement anxiety um, and there's a lot of retirement anxiety and people just can't seem to do anything yes But isn't that the issue, that we've reduced retirement to a number as opposed to a process? And what we haven't done is that we haven't spent enough time and energy. I mean, we have, well, how many? Um, four million people over the age of 60 in this country. Only 6% can retire above 75% replacement ratio, but they're not on the streets. 74% live in multi-generational homes. So what are we doing to equip those homes, those families, that whole community to support. What other mechanisms are there that we can help people talk about besides a number? And maybe that's where we're letting down our clients. We're not talking enough about what are the other options. Yeah, I, th I think that's an extremely valid, valid comment. I think, I think the single number is inadequate in every way. I'm, I'm looking for a slightly better single number is not really the solution. Um, I, I feel like the, the place where I would like to do research but I've been afraid to is is really what does happen in those multi-generational homes, how are elders regarded there, what what happens with the SOG, I mean there's, there's, there's evidence of these social transfers being very meaningful and powerful um, and when I was looking at happiness it's the sort of thing that, that, that you know gives you status in, the, in, a, in a home and in a society just because you're receiving a pension and everybody else is not earning. Um, so I think there's a lot of dynamics around that um, in those lowest income households that we don't understand. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask a question on your salary increase assumption because the problem is promotions doesn't come yeah. like annually. Yes. So if you do those calculations, I assume every five years or whatever, you're not going to make your consumption. Yeah. So we we thought about we thought about how to do the promotional things long and hard and and copped out basically. Um, so, um, and especially in the UCT environment, it's it's and, and if you look at academics, it's it's very much um, the pattern of promotion is very odd. So I can get three more promotions. No, I can get two more promotions, and when I get them, could determine my whole pension adequacy. Uh, the worst thing you can do is be get promoted to professor a year from retirement. Um, because your, your retirement replacement ratio suddenly drops by, by 30% or something like that as a result of that. So, so what we tried to do is we smoothed it and said, we don't quite know when they're coming, um, but they are, the, the, the quantum is about right. So 1% per annum or 30% every, you know, 20% every, every 10 years or 20 years is, is, is something that, that's about right. And you see, it's a difference between DB and DC. Yes. It's sort of funded for the promotion. Yeah. And, and, and DB... Yes. Yeah, so that's part of the communication. And actually something that I do think happens is that if you do get promoted to professor at the age of 64, hopefully that's not the Lamborghini lifestyle. Hopefully you just go, that's a nice bonus for the year, but can I, I'm going to, you know. So, so hope, hopefully, the, I mean, so there's a lot of work to be done around how fast do you adjust and how sensible can people be about. And I mean, you know, technically anybody could live on a senior lecturer's salary and, and why, why do we have to? So, so there's a whole bunch of things around that. So that's kind of the, what the last slide speaks to, which is, it really, if you're on, a, on over a million a year, could, can you, how much can you decrease your consumption without suffering too much? And I think that's another thing that's happening, actually, that high-income earners can adjust their lifestyles. Hi, I do financial planning, so I sit with people um, doing these calculations and, and trying to assist them with these processes. Your graph showed that everybody is not the same, and that is uh, when you bring in the social aspects or how much family or community support, mm. it get the dispersion gets even wider. Yeah. So 
our, our question is uh, the need for something like a replacement ratio or a general figure outside of the general management in the back office of a, um, of a fund. Um, because it's not a useful communication benchmark, I don't think, at all, because people's circumstances are so different. And I think perhaps a, a real value rand amount would be more useful, because somebody can imagine, I'm getting 10,000 rand a month, and in the individual circumstances, they can assess, is that adequate or not? And trying to make it relative to some figure now, to me, is not helpful. Yeah, and I think you're right. That there's a lot of funds that are doing that, particularly as you get closer to retirement, they're actually switching to communicating a pension amount as opposed to any kind of, of ratio. And I, I think there is wisdom in, in, that, in that as well. So I, I think anything that you, you can really relate to physically is, is better than, than these numbers. And, and on the other hand, these, as tools for trustees for setting things like contribution rates for funds are also a useful thing. So we haven't really talked about that. But if you're a DC fund that's trying to figure out what is our default, what is our recommended contribution rate that, that kind of tool still can help. But yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Hi. Um, so every year I go to boards of trustees. I'm over here. Hi. <laughs> and we do uh, replacement ratio projections. And obviously, the answer is you need to contribute more. Uh, the next year I go there, and ABCs have not changed by much. I obviously don't just speak directly to the members, but the trustees speak to the members. So ABCs very rarely change. So member behavior doesn't get impacted by any of the projections we do, even if, even if it gets communicated. Mm. I do see, though, what does change specifically on boards of trustees that include union representation and employer representation, both of whom sit at wage negotiation level, that on those funds, uh, the next time I come there, there actually is a contribution increase um, of a half percent or a one percent, but going towards a target that we've set. So I, I don't think necessarily the replacement ratio is uh, is useless. I think if communicated to the right decision makers, it can actually be quite useful. Um, and then also just the other thing, incorporating the state old age pension, I always am wary about including that in replacement ratios because it's not a guarantee, uh, it's a promise, and uh, it's a very wavy promise, especially when all the communists get kicked out of government and all the capitalists are getting uh, shipped in. Yeah. Um, okay, no comment on that, but okay. Um, <laughs> Um, I, uh, on the SOG, I think for, for trustees it might be another useful thing to see, but not necessarily to members. I think you're right in that what, what can cause action, and I think what we're seeing is that in individuals really struggle to act no matter what you do. Behavioral biases and all sorts of things are, are stopping individuals, and putting so much power in the hands of individuals is kind of what's making retirement this orphan child that doesn't work. Um, and and yeah, so in a fund where you can actually shift it on a on a some sort of um, paternalistic scale, where the trustee, trustees or, or, or unions or somebody else can make that decision, um, those are the, the 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 places where things can actually change. And yeah, and I think that speaks to what Megan said as well. It's really hard to make individuals change. Um, and yes, the the short term over the long term thing is just so pronounced with pensions, and it's just so hard. Yeah. Joe, um, in response to Megan's question, uh, I think I've worked with a big fund where we've put a big focus on the behavioral element, which is simply when does it hurt the least to increase your contribution yes. rate, and that it's is a pay time. increase time. Yeah. And we've done a focus on saying half a percent. Do it half a percent each year for the next mm. 10 years, and this is the impact. Yeah. And looked at the stats afterwards, and close to 10% of members had increased contribution rates. Um, probably more if you look at the number of people who actually read communication yeah. um, and a significantly smaller number of people who decreased the contribution. And if you rate. can shift it to being a pre-commitment or a default or opt-out, that would make an enormous difference. And I, and I wonder why we can't because an opt-out system is, is, is still, you know, it's, it's not forcing anyone, but I think it would make such an enormous change. So, but well done for doing that. That's amazing. And yeah, salary increase time is definitely the time to do it. Nobody understands what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I one in the middle. Yeah, sorry. I think the other issue to consider is also the commutation at the retirement. 
because most of the members will definitely, I mean, they almost take the one-third that they're entitled uh, to take. I yes. mean, how they use that to adjust the income replacement, there's yes. not enough data to look at that. But probably not well. Um, yes, I, I, I didn't put it down, but yes, that's one of the limitations is that, I mean, p people don't buy an annuity first of all, and then second of all, they will have used up a third or more of their fund. So yes, all of those problems. I mean, we're only getting to the point where actually we need to talk about is like, who's going to be retiring 40 years from now? And what does that look like? Because that's the other question in the world ever. Like if you're living to 100, um, you know, who's retiring at, at 60 and what is retirement? So that's like a completely different area, but it's really hard to, to know what the future will bring. Big data probably, just based on everything else. <laughs> so one of the other interesting things in your analysis, which you didn't really touch on, is this pensionable salary story which causes a lot of confusion. Uh, because I didn't want to get angry. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is that it's an outdated concept as well. So it's strange that your fund hasn't actually dropped that. And I understand that you're probably going to say to me, take home pay. No. But you can still achieve the same thing with different yes. with choice of contribution yes. rate as opposed to... Because to choose a pensionable salary is, is just something that is... Nobody understands it's wrong yeah. it's terrible in many ways, yeah. absolutely i will hug you after this session um we are in the process joe joe uh, is my actuary um we, uh, but uh, we are in the process of getting rid of it i i'm told a three-year time horizon is a perfectly acceptable timeline for this kind of change but but we are in the process we the board of trustees has approved that we get rid of it and do uh, uh, a, a flexible contribution rate instead and it's it's just such a no-brainer and nobody understands it nobody you guys probably don't understand it. <laughs> Finish. So many questions. Exciting. Arthur. Hi, Jane. I'd certainly like your concept of a CRR. There's two questions. Firstly, I notice you increase the tax rate by 1% real. I would have thought that as the salary goes up, you move into different brackets, yeah, so itself we, we, we actually projected the brackets. So it was a, it was a bracket projection rather than a tax rate projection. Okay, yeah. I understand. Second one is, uh, one gets quite perturbed when you hear that 25% of your medical costs are incurred in the last year of life. You mentioned uh, one of the costs is healthcare and the other is leisure. Yet I see in your consumption you've made no allowance for either of those after retirement. Surely that's an under underestimative consumption. Yeah, so that's the argument to have, is what is that number? And I think that your voting showed really clearly that we have no idea what that number is. Um, I, I've left it at 100% as a thumb suck, um, and you could put it to another number entirely. Um, healthcare only increases later in life, so the argument is how do you incorporate it in that very limited ratio that only includes the first year? I mean, do you include it as like a saving that you're making towards later in life as an additional thing? So, so that's quite hard to, to do. Um, but it is a thumb suck. So for me, the, the main thing was like, if, I, if that was my budget, if my budget was 92% of my take-home pay, and I had to work with that as, a, as, a, you know, as what I've got for the rest of my life, would I be able to make that work? And I could think about that at least. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, for your contributions. I think one last point is also you have um, dependents. We've just spoken about married and um, the spouse, but you may have some children that are still going through university. Of <laughs> <laughs> so they may also still be a burden for you as you hit retirement. I about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much, uh, Joe. Um, can we just give Joe an applause for all of it? I think the discussion will go on. Thank and thank you very much for all the participation. Thank you. Yeah.